The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about African debt relief, and we're going to focus a little bit of our conversation on the Chinese role, but we're going to step back and look at the bigger picture This is a topic, obviously, that we've been covering all year long in light of the COVID-19 outbreak and the subsequent economic crisis that has ensued. Uh, So let's go to Beijing. Zhao Lijian, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, uh, just last Friday said that uh, China has implemented the G20 debt service suspension initiative and signed an agreement or reached consensus on debt payment suspension with over 10 African countries. Those are his words. Uh, there's, uh, we'll give you a bigger update here. 73 countries, 36 in Africa, are eligible for the G20's Debt Service Suspension Initiative, otherwise known as DSSI. 41 of those countries have accepted the offer, 28 from Africa. 24 uh, have secured debt relief from the Paris Club. Now, the Paris Club is a kind of elite group of wealthy donors. 18 of those are African including seven with euro bonds, that is Ethiopia, Congo, Ivory Coast, Senegal, Zambia, Cameroon, and Pakistan. So all of that sounds quite encouraging, quite positive, like things are actually happening. However, it's actually not that simple. On July 18th, World Bank President David Malpass, he addressed G20 finance ministers and central bank governors, and he urged them to extend the DSSI through the end of 2021. Now, right now, DSSI is supposed to run out at the end of this year, and nobody really thinks that's enough time. So what he said is to maximize much-needed support to eligible countries, and this is where it gets interesting for our conversation, Kobus, all official bilateral creditors, including national policy banks, should implement the DSSI in a transparent manner. For example, he said, this is a quote, Full participation of the China Development Bank as an official bilateral creditor is important to make the initiative work. Now, that was very interesting on July 18th that the World Bank president, David Malpass, would call out the Chinese. He didn't call out any other country, okay? Then later on, about a week or two later, we start to see headlines coming out of Kenya. And this is our good friend, Agri Mutambo, who is the foreign affairs reporter at the Daily Nation. And he wrote an article with the headline, China dithers on Africa debt forgiveness over, quote-unquote, complex loans. So we're starting to get a picture now that it's not quite as clean-cut as I think Jolly Jen at the Chinese Foreign Ministry is making it sound. And then finally, we got this little gem from the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa just last week, uh, where they tweeted, uh, Vera Songwei and uh, the Economic Commission for Africa official Twitter account encourages China to honor the pledge of President Xi for China to fully participate in the G20 debt service suspension initiative to support Africa's liquidity needs in this difficult time. Kobus, it is pretty much unheard of in international relations for a United Nations entity to call out a P5, a permanent five member of the Security Council, 
publicly like that. So the World Bank, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa have both called out China, giving us an indication that things may not be moving quite as smoothly as the Chinese are indicating. Yeah, this is this is something that's that's made considerably more difficult by the the usual way that the, that China doesn't tend to be very communicative or transparent on these issues. So it's you know we should keep in mind that in the um, a month or two ago in that virtual summit that Xi Jinping had with African leaders, he himself said that or called for the the DSSI to be extended beyond December. The the issue with the China Development Bank, I think, it's also um, also has to do with the way that the China Development Bank uh, loans are are, um, are classified. Um, in some cases, I, I you know I'm no expert here, but like I, I remember reading, uh, particularly Deborah Brautinger mentioning that some um, China Development Bank loans are classified as commercial loans. So I think that that kind of adds another complication. But you know, kind of it, all of this is happening while there's also increasing pressure. On countries in relation to their commercial debt, the eurobond debt, um, you know, so so while the China is taking it case by case and not really communicating what's happening um, in in the G20 space, there's also this additional threat, kind of, to African economies from of the possible default on euro eurobond debt. I'm very glad that you brought up Deborah Braudigam and the China Africa Research Initiative because the folks over there have the most comprehensive research available right now on Chinese debt in Africa. They are far more expert on this than either you or I. And so very, just really excited to be able to invite everybody to go check out some of their new interactive tools that they have available to be able to see and to fact check even what we're gonna say. So let's now get the big picture as to what's going on. And for that, uh, I'm thrilled for the first time to have Alonzo Soto, who is an Abuja-based correspondent for Bloomberg News, where he's covering the African debt crisis more closely pretty much than any other journalist out there. Joining us from Madrid today, a very good afternoon to you, Alonzo. Good afternoon to you all. Alonzo, you have been covering from the beginning of this debt crisis uh, what the Chinese role in it. There's two articles in particular that we flagged for our subscribers of our newsletter. Uh, You wrote uh, back in July, uh, Africa starts to have second thoughts about that Chinese money. And then in June, you wrote the ticking time bomb in Africa threatens a global explosion. Now, those were two very big reports that you wrote uh, for Bloomberg about the current debt crisis. Give us an understanding of where you think we are now based on what you've seen over the past few months. Well, it, the, the way that I look at this is you have to see it in, in different tracks. And I will say in here that we have four tracks. We have the bilateral debt, which is basically what the G20 agreed to in April which is, you know, we'll give you guys a break. Uh, We're not going to charge you principal and interest for this year. And that's from the, you know, from the the most developed countries or the richest countries in the world, including China. Then we have the multilateral debt, which at that letter from the G20, uh, the initial one in April, you had these guys calling on the IMF, on the World Bank, to try to see if they can provide some um, some relief as well. The the IMF has done so, but very little. Uh, the World Bank has says that it will not do so because it could threaten their, their rating as the lender of last resort. Um, and then uh, we have the commercial debt. We have the euro bonds. On that front, nothing has really moved. Um, so what you see is that 
uh, until this day, there hasn't really been anything official. There hasn't been an official approach by by a sovereign, by a country, by a government to one of the to one of the, its bondholders. It seems that there has been some informal conversations, but nothing that has really been considered to be official. And that is linked to this fourth track, which is China, which is by far just the biggest um, sort of player in here, along with the private creditors. And one thing that is interesting is that um, the, the Chinese negotiation for relief is very linked to the commercial debt because bondholders are saying, I'm not going to give you any relief until I know exactly how much you own to China and how much relief uh, is China going to give you because I am not willing to give you more relief than what China is doing. So you have a very interesting situation in which bondholders are saying, uh, we're not going to carry the burden. We're not going to help out China. We want to know how much China will give these guys in order for us to know how much we'll give them. So comparability of terms in here. So that's an, that's an interesting development. And so far, there really hasn't been much advance on the on the private side. Alonso, um, what, say you know the DSSI runs out in in December as as you know scheduled. What does the worst case scenario look like in in Africa? Like you know, kind of what you know what would a, a kind of a, a string of defaults look like, both in in terms of the African economic situation, but also in in terms of the global impact. Well, I think that, you know, it's difficult to say right now. Um, oil prices have somewhat stabilized and that's helping countries like Nigeria, uh, like Angola, uh, Gabon. Uh, so it seems that the worst is over for them. However, the, the economic situation of a lot of the oil and copper and you know, metal producers in general, commodity producers, it, they're in they're in trouble. Um, so you know you have you had countries that were already in in serious debt issues and debt troubles like uh, Zambia, for example. And this is a country that is negotiating with China and is also uh, plans to negotiate with private creditors to reschedule that. So we don't know the full extent. What we know, and and I had chats with rating agencies, and they are concerned. They believe there will be more more downgradings. Um, they believe that some of these countries will be in trouble uh, next year. Um, some some more than others. There is an extension. You know, not not every country, not everyone in Africa is is suffering the same. Uh, there are some countries in a better in better shape. Uh, but there are concerns that you know the the the, the finances of a lot of these countries are getting um, hit very hard right now, and that unless um, we see a a true recovery, a V-shaped recovery, um, we're not going to see these guys getting out of the hole uh, next year. Um, and what's worse, you know, if we have a second wave like we're seeing here in Spain, uh, in Spain there there's quite a few cases, up to three thousand cases per day right now. And in other European countries, um, you know, that could be something that, depending on the measures that are taken, could really hit the global economy again. And these countries could be in, in serious problems. So right now, in, in terms of, you know, who is next in the line of, of default, uh, we're not seeing anybody, um, you know, with, with the exception of places like Zambia um, and a few other folks that, you know, are, are in imminent danger of, of default. But that will happen as, you know, as the year progresses and into next year. That could be, that could be a serious problem. Now, a lot of your coverage has focused on Angola. And Angola plays a very important role when we talk about the Chinese. 
And it brings up the point that the folks at the China-Africa Research Initiative have mentioned quite a bit in their coverage of this, which is that Africa does not have a Chinese debt problem. About 10 African countries have a Chinese debt problem. You mentioned Zambia, Djibouti's another one, Ethiopia, Kenya, those are on the radar, but none more so than Angola. Talk to us a little bit about the relationship between China and Angola in terms of debt. Well, I think in here, um, and you're right, if you look at the numbers from Job Hopkins, really Angola is by far uh, the biggest recipient of of debt from, from China. A lot of this debt is collateralized, so it is linked to uh, oil production. Um, so part of the exports, the proceeds from their exports, goes back into um, uh, paying some of this debt. Angola has the, has been reported that Angola is actually has reached some sort of an agreement with China, but very few people know the details. At least you know we haven't been able to figure out what exactly was agreed on. Um, you know, it seems that they were. What able do you to- think it is? What would you speculate the details of like a deal might would be something like that? What are some of the scenarios that we might envision? I think in here, you know, it may be delaying payments, and by delaying payments, will be allowing um, Angolans to sell more of their oil to uh, to the markets instead of shipping it or instead of getting those uh, proceeds to China. So I think there will be some sort of a delay. I think you know, you guys mentioned Deborah, uh, Job Hopkins. They've been doing a lot of research about how um, you know the the restructurings that we have seen in the past. Um, you know, China seems to be more willing to restructure. Uh, they don't pardon debt. They only pardon a very small percentage of their debt, but they're willing to pardon. So what I see with um, what I see with Angola could be something on the lines of delaying payments, allowing them to sell more of their oil directly to to private uh, buyers. Um, or trying to come up with other agreements. I think that the Chinese, the relationship between Angola and China is is a strong relation. Um, it, there are some historic ties. There are some um, ideological ties in there as well, at least in the past. Um, just like Zambia has been sort of the historical, you know, one of the first places where, where China uh, carried out its policies um, in Africa. So there is a, 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 a what I consider, and, and you guys may disagree, but I consider it to be a strong relationship. Um, and it seems that the Chinese will be willing uh, to restructure some of that debt or at least delay the payment uh, initially uh, for some sort of a, you know, to, to allow uh, Angola to stabilize uh, until things get better on the macro front, which, which is not easy. And, and remember that also that deal with China is very important. Uh, for um, for the IMF and for the IMF restructuring of its program with Angola and for the release of more of more funds or to enlarge uh, that initial program. This crisis, um, you know, to, to, like it, it's, it's difficult to, to to judge the scale of the crisis historically at, at the moment because we're right in the middle of it. Do you foresee, you know, kind of after a year or two of of kind of of mitigation measures that lending to Africa will kind of slowly kind of go back to the normal we've experienced in the 2010s or do you see this as a kind of like a like a paradigm breaking event that is going to necessitate new instruments and new kind of ways of lending in the future i think it's interesting i think there is a there's a debate i've been speaking recently with different academics and and private investors and there is this idea that maybe because of what's happening and the, and the level of crisis that we will see in africa that you will see a um a return 
to more concessional lending from places like you know the IMF and the World Bank, um, lower interest rate, longer maturity. Uh, so that may, you know, we may see sort of the end of this tremendous rise in, in eurobonds over the last few years. Um, that may also be accompanied with more lending from, from China, even more lending from China. But maybe depending on what the negotiations entail and, and what kind of relief and the pressures that the G20 and the Paris Club inflict, there may be a, a bit more transparency on those new loans from China. And, and China itself, as we have talked in the past, actually China itself is trying to restrict that, trying to be a bit more uh, restrictive in, in the way that it gives lending. So that's, that's one way of looking at it, which is more concessional lending, less eurobonds. The other way of looking at it, and this is something that some investors and analysts have been talking about, is actually uh, right now in the world, because there's so much cheap money around, because everybody is, you know, the United States and Europe has pumped so much money into their economy to to uh, to counter the the epidemic, um, the pandemic. You're actually going to see uh, a tremendous surge for yield and uh, in bonds. And one of the countries in, you know, one of the regions in the world that has offered some of the best yields is is it's countries in Africa. So you may see actually um, a return. Uh, depending on how the global economy behaves, if this glut continues, the capital glut continues, you may see a return on investors and you may see some of these countries issuing uh, debt in international markets again. Remember that, you know, that stopped in March. Once the pandemic hit, um, a lot of these African countries that had planned to issue, including countries like Nigeria, that was prepared to issue $3.3 billion this year, they all had to shelf those plans. And right now, it's... There's really no um, there's no horizon for when these guys will issue again. But some investors are saying actually this this may come uh, sooner than you think, and we may see another um, another record number or at least a a comeback of private debt uh, that these countries desperately need. Now uh, that could be an issue, right? Is uh, some of these countries, as the IMF and the World Bank has warned. Uh, their finances are not in, in good shape. Revenues are dropping at record levels in many of these countries because of the pandemic. Uh, so taking on more private debt, which is more expensive and in, in shorter duration, that may be a, a tremendous issue. And I don't know if that's something that investors are really taking into account at the moment. Well, let's talk a little bit about the politics of this debt, because we can't just keep it purely in the economic and finance sphere, because inevitably uh, it gets sucked into politics. Last year, in 2019, uh, your former colleague at Reuters, Joe Bavier, he wrote an article from an interview that he did with U.S. Assistant Secretary of State uh, Tibor Nagy, who has been a longtime China critic. And he said, this is, of course, long before there was anything COVID-19, don't expect any bailouts from us. And what he was indicating was U.S. and presumably European frustration that any restructuring of debt would go to basically repay Chinese loans and using U.S. and European taxpayer money to do that. And so he was saying, don't expect it from us. So there's a lot of sensitivity, and you've alluded to this in some of your earlier points today, about lots of relief money coming into Africa that will then get shuffled around and the Chinese get repaid, but everybody else doesn't. And this has been one of the concerns at the International Monetary Fund about special drawing rights. 
Uh, one of the key requests coming from African finance ministers is to expand what they call the SDRs. Now, the challenge on SDRs is that the IMF cannot carve out one continent or one country. Either it does it for everybody or it does it for nobody. And there are concerns in Washington, and this has been raised by David Dollar at the Brookings Institution, that the United States does not want to expand the SDRs, which would be a capital injection, because it's concerned that China and Iran would then get cash from U.S. taxpayers. So talk to us a little bit about the politics of the debt and the IMF and the fact that the IMF and the World Bank today do not seem to have the clout that they did in previous debt crises, given the fact that private creditors in China now are so much stronger on the debt scene. Yeah, there is definitely a, a quite a change in terms of their influence. Uh, you know, the World Bank, the IMF, the Paris Club, uh, in terms of, of bilateral and multilateral debt, you know, China is, is the big player right now. I think that, you know, um, there's definitely a different approach uh, from the United States, uh, at least compared to Europe. And I, that's just my observation. You know, when you when you talk to the Paris Club, when you talk to the French, when you talk to the Spaniards, there seems to be a sense that, you know, we can give more to the um, to the Africans and there needs to be more of an effort. Um, and some of them are, you know, supporting, um, for example, uh, the use of the expansion of SDRs. The United States has a, a, a much more aggressive tone and in saying how this will uh, and not only benefit um, uh, China, but uh, it will also benefit countries like Syria and even Venezuela. Uh, so there is really quite a, a, a more aggressive approach. The, the IMF was not able to convince the United States to change its, um, its position, you know, when talk about expanding the SDR was, uh, was floated uh, earlier this year during the pandemic. It's unlikely that they will be able to do much from that, much more. The World Bank, uh, remember, this is something that I have, I have talked to some people who um, some academics who consider, who believe that somebody like Malpass actually, when, when he was at the Treasury, he was considered to be what they call a China hawk. He was somebody who um, uh, wanted to get more concessions for China and believe that, uh, you know, some of the policies China was pursuing abroad um, were in the detriment of, of the United States. Um, so if you have somebody like that in, in a position at the top of, of the World Bank, uh, you know, pressure will continue on China, at least rhetorically, but um, I don't think much, much, much else can be done. Um, it will be interesting to see if, you know, what, if China is able to um, maybe provide more details about what it's doing in terms of relief. And I'm wondering if that could help China's image in the region and among some of the, some of the allies of the region, or at least on, on this European bloc. Uh, that seems to be more sympathetic with the situation in, in Africa and, and wants to see more relief toward toward the region. These guys, through the Paris Club, you see more pressure on China. It's not as direct as, you know, you have heard it from Malpass at the World Bank or obviously from, from the United States government. But there is some pressure for these guys to open up and show more of their cards. Uh, and so far, China hasn't hasn't really done it. So that's uh, that's where I think things stand. It will be interesting to see how this develops as the situation changes. Uh, you know, like I said, if the economy doesn't, the world world economy doesn't help, and things deteriorate quickly here in Africa, it will be interesting to see how that how that changes. 
you you're usually based in in Nigeria um and over the last two weeks or so we've seen this big kind of wave of almost like a moral panic kind of running through the, the Nigerian press and social media about Chinese loans and particularly about a, a clause mm-hmm. that that is kind of boilerplate language um, in these agreements that that essentially says that if there is a default then um, Nigeria can be forced um, to kind of give or like the, Nigeria loses its immunity from um, from going into arbitration and then you know the the, the negotiations has to go has to go to an arbitration um, you know kind of facility somewhere um, but it's been taken in Nigeria as, as you know, kind of all read in Nigeria as, as saying that Nigeria will lose sovereignty over some of its national assets. Um, what do you make of this of this kind of wave of of anxiety in Nigeria about Chinese loans? Well, it's interesting because, for example, today today the the finance minister and the the head of the debt management's office were supposed to actually be in in the assembly to speak with some of these lawmakers from the committee. I spoke with the lawmaker, uh, the congressman who actually filed this um, uh, this petition for a, for a probe. Um, he was a member of of an opposition party. So what you see here is that you do see um, demands for more clarity, um, uh, but it's coming from the opposition. Now President Buhari seems to have control over the assembly. So um, he may be able, depending on how he handles it, he may be able to, to, um, to contain this. Um, now, one interesting thing is that actually Nigeria is not heavily exposed to China in terms of that. And that management office has released information about a lot of these contracts, which are uh, mostly infrastructure projects. So um, in the overall, you know... The, I think what is important here is whether this could set a precedent uh, in other places. I think Nigeria is seems to be an exception because there is a lot more transparency in terms of its contracts and uh, loan contracts with China. A lot of other countries um, do not have that. Um, so it will be interesting to see how this plays along. However, I don't see, um, at least for my understanding of the situation at this moment, I don't think this will... Uh, progress for too long or really um, uh, become too uh, too much of a big problem for President Buhari. Um, but it is something that is it is sounding a lot. You you hear it a lot in, in social media, and and it's something that Nigerians are very a lot of everyday Nigerians are are starting to be concerned about. This was something that was not in their radar before, and is now becoming in the radar. And and remember, this is a country that. Um, you know, it's, it's scarred by uh, a tremendous amount of corruption that you have seen in, you know, in, in decades and in recent years. Um, so again, it's something that uh, attracts a lot of attention, uh, media and social media attention. But on the ground, it seems that this, this may be short-lived um, and it depends on how the president handles it at the end. But, but again, I think it's important in the sense of will this send a, a precedent or will this be something that, you know, uh, policymakers elsewhere in Africa um, are maybe don't believe that is something that is that is needed because they want to conserve a good relationship with with China. One of the things that we saw here in, in Nigeria was, you know, we had a, a, a governor minister saying that he was afraid that if the probe continues, that China was going to be 
uh, concern and was going to offer last loans to uh, to Nigeria. So that's something that you hear it from from different government officials here. So that may be something that will stop also other governments uh, from pushing uh, for for these sort of investigations or at least. Uh, local policymakers from searching this. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the issue of Nigeria and that Kobus asked the question because it's something that I've been writing about quite a bit, uh, almost continuously for the past two or three weeks now. And this is, this is a crisis that has gone on longer than most of the China crises this summer in Nigeria. And it has a lot of staying power. And I'm, I'm just trying to get beyond the, the, the superficial because as you pointed out, the debt management office in Abuja issued very clear statements that said uh, only about 3% of China's of Nigeria's external debt is owed to China and it's it's very little and all of it is tied to key infrastructure projects so there's a lot of transparency as you pointed out as to where the money's going in fact just this weekend uh, the transportation minister and the minister of, in, of information and culture uh, took the media to uh, the standard gauge railway project in Abuja to show this is what the money's being used for but yet, there is just an enormous amount of, and I, I don't say hysteria to diminish it, but it really is at hysteria level now among in social media, on TV. Uh, it, it really is that the, the sovereignty clause crisis has sparked a lot of deep anxiety in the body politic. And it runs deeper than just the debt. And I'm trying to understand what it is. Now, is it, you pointed out, again, these concerns about the debt come typically from opposition politicians in the National Assembly. So there might be a political angle just to stick it to Buhari that's in the ruling party. But is there something deeper in terms of the colonial history, this idea that sovereignty was stripped already once and here it is happening again? There's got to be something more that explains the incredible levels of anxiety that people are expressing about the Chinese. So I, th I think you're right, and you know, and, and when I when I talked to the lawmaker who who started this with the with the with the action, you know, I think he talked uh, in a way that reflects what many people in Nigeria fear, which is, you know, is this a new colonial effort to try to strip us of our wealth? I think there is there's deep there are deep scars here in in Nigeria about what happened in the oil industry. Um, how a country with so much wealth continues to be extremely poor, and, and in fact, it is the country in the world with the most, uh, with the highest number of of uh, of, of poor people. Um, so I think there is uh, there is certainly something very ingrained in society of how other people have taken advantage of us, and we don't want this to happen again. And I think there is also the sense that, um, you know, things are not getting better. Um, the, the pandemic has worsened things for a lot of people. Uh, you know, we had the unemployment uh, figures uh, last week and unemployment has gone up. It's actually the highest in, in at least a decade since the numbers starting to be published. And, and some analysts think that that's actually, you know, it, it may be, it may actually higher than, than the official number. Um, so I think there is a discontent in general that things have not progressed, uh, you know, and not only during the administration of President Buhari, but even before that, things have actually not progressed despite our wealth and the people are taking advantage of us. 
So I think that, that there is something in there. Um, but again, I think that, you know, how long this will last and how big it will get, let's see. You know, I think there is a lot of discontent. Uh, let's see how the opposition handles this. And let's see how President Buhari can can manage uh, to suppress this inside the assembly. He's supposed to have a majority in there. So let, let's see how it goes. But so far, you know, I think I think you're right. I think there is... A much deeper scars that explain this reaction uh, to this. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. You know, going forward, how, how do you see this, the current crisis, um, reshaping Africa's thinking about about lending um, and debt. Um, I, you know, to, to give context, like I, I was reading an article in the Economist today um, that pointed out that that there's been a lot of energy in development circles put into ideas of blended finance. You know, in which in which traditional development finance institutions, you know, the, there's a portion of, of financing coming from them, and then uh, you know, kind of that provides security to then pull in financing from from. Pension, like pension funds in the global north and other other investors that that haven't been traditionally been interested in investing in things like solar power in in Angola, for example, um, and that those actually face a lot of challenges and they have actually haven't been nearly as successful as people had hoped. Um, like, w- what is Africa's lending landscape looking like after this crisis? Um, and you know, kind of where does it put African development? You know, when we take into account that so much of this lending is for crucial infrastructure. I think that, um, like I said before, I think that, you know, for example, when you look at private credit and where this is going to be, <clears throat> where is it going, commercial eurobonds, um, I think that is something that from the participation in the debt suspension initiative, you see that a lot of countries are very worried about losing access to private financing. Private financing has been key for uh, the financing of, of infrastructure in the in the region for the for the financing of, of different projects. Um, so, but the fact that countries like Nigeria, Kenya uh, rejected or did not participate in the debt suspension initiative tells you how important it is for them, and that that is something that will continue to tap in the future. You know, the problem with uh, and as, as you guys well know, the problem with the concessional lending is, you know, the series of strings uh, attached to it and, and what, the con- what countries have to do. And, and again, some of the deep scars in the past about some of these, uh, you know, previous lending, previous programs with the IMF and the World Bank um, that led to devaluations that led to more poverty or that led to um, uh, policies that were not constructive for uh, for growth. Uh, so those scars are there. So I think that, again, you know, I think countries for a while, they will they will go back to concessionary. But as, you know, as some experts told me, as some, as some analysts told me, and some African officials told me, you know, we don't have a lot of places to turn to. Um, there are some interesting um, mechanisms that are being uh, developed or at least uh, floated around, which is 
the idea, uh, UNECA's uh, Vera Songwe has this idea, this, this liquidity facility, which is going to be a special purpose vehicle backed by a G20 central bank or a group of G20 central bank, which will basically guarantee uh, new issuances. So that way, by having a triple A backer uh, um, interest rates, the value of that of those loans for African countries will will drop. And we're talking about going back to the markets, but with lower interest rates. Because if if you look at the coupon and the interest rate of African countries, I think it's something that I'm currently working on. Uh, there is a premium. Um, you know, there's different ways of looking at this and and different analysts. A premium is one way of saying it. Discrimination, prejudice, bias is another way that other people are calling it. Yes, I think that there, there is a, a division on that. I think that, you know, uh, you talk to some investors and some analysts who say, actually, you know, there is, uh, when, it comes into, when it comes to Africa, you have least, less data available. A lot of these countries are not as transparent. And also a lot of these countries are new to this game. You know, a lot of these countries, you know, one of the first issuances was Ghana in 2007. So they haven't been around the market that long. And a lot of these countries don't understand the market that well. So, you know, there is a risk. And investors on, on their behalf, they also don't understand the, the, mar- the you know, this new market that well. So, um, you know, there is that side. And then if you talk to a few other academics and government officials, they say, actually, there is discrimination. There is a premium that we pay that we believe is unfair. Uh, and this is just because everybody paints Africa with the same brush. And every time that there is a an attack somewhere or an, an instability some, in some other place, you know, we get blamed for it. So, you know, even before this crisis, it, it, there was a an event, a forum of the IMF with West African countries in, in Senegal. And in one of those uh, meetings, um, President Macky Sall, this was a public event, but President Macky Sall, um, you know, told Georgieva from the IMF, you know, we're paying too high interest rates and this is holding back our development. So I think, you know, talking about the future, uh, I think there is a sense from many policymakers that, yes, we're paying too high interest rates. You know, for example, uh, just to give you an example of Nigeria, you know, if you look at that to GDP, Nigeria is actually quite low in the 30s. Um, but when you look at uh, debt to revenues is, you know, on the 70s, and it could go even higher than that, the 60s, 70s, and it, is probably, it will probably go higher than that, debt service. So uh, when it comes into debt tolerance, how much more debt these guys are able to get it's limited because you're paying very high interest rates. And that affects development, right? That affects your capacity to, uh, you know, materialize infrastructure projects that will help your economy grow faster and will allow you to have also social programs. So there is an interesting debate going on about this premium. Uh, and, you know, and where the truth lies, it's, it's more complicated. I think there is, in my sense, is that there, there is a mix of both things. There, is a, you know, there are some technicalities and some issues with data and transparency that is hurting African countries. But on the other hand, there may be less of an effort from investors because it's a very young market and a very small market, although it offers very high very high yields. Let's go back to that Vera Songway idea of basically creating, an, and I don't know if I'm right when I say this, but it seems like it's creating a collateralized debt obligation, much like the mortgage housing crisis in the US, where they took a whole bunch of mortgages, wrapped them up into a single equity, and then sold that out under a new kind of pretty 
banner with a bow on top. There doesn't seem to me any traction for that idea. I know a lot of people in development circles and in the media have been talking about the idea and think it's a great idea, but I have yet to see any AAA or AA agency, either a central bank or a multilateral, kind of say, yep, sign us up, we'll do that. Have you seen any indication whatsoever, even a slightest indication, that that idea has any remote chance of, of actually succeeding? To this moment, as of yet, no. So we haven't, you know, I have not heard of of any, you know, from my sources that this is that this is taking shape or it will take off. Not at the moment. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people a lot of people believe and agree that this is a good idea. You know, this is something that you can do to help uh, African countries that you know they're in serious problems right now or they will be in the future. But to be honest, I, I haven't seen any, at least publicly or even with my sources, I haven't seen anything that, that shows true backing to this. Yeah, and Kobus, that goes back to our discussion last week where we were talking about debt. And I was I went on a little bit of a rant and, and I just said I haven't seen much progress in anything substantive. There's been a little bit of details around the edges of what the DSSI has done, what World Bank has done, Paris Club has done. But in terms of the scale of the problem, it doesn't seem like the big donors are responding in the ways that Africa needs or wants, short of what China's doing, which we don't actually know. No, I mean, you know, kind of, yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, Alonso, what kind of what impact on this whole crisis would it uh, would it have if China would simply become, you know, extremely transparent about its lending practices? Like, if if China just like threw open the curtain and was like, "This is who, this is you know, kind of what what we're doing. This is how we're dealing with the crisis. These are the the, the kind of nitty gritty details." Um, like, how would that change the equation? I think the first thing is that it may it may actually serve private creditors. It may serve them to actually get more involved. There are a lot of questions right now whether if investors will get involved anyway, uh, if there's really appetite. It's it's difficult because you know you have a wide range of of investors, and um, you know one of the things that I'm hearing from uh, some of those investors is. If China is more transparent and reveals how much relief it will give to these guys, we are more likely to participate. We want transparency and clarity. So that is one element that could change you know, the game. It could um, actually uh, support or give more momentum to a pri- the private initiative, private involvement, how is it called? Um, if it will happen... Even if China is more transparency, that's something else. But at least that has been the argument that, you know, the art, the the investors, some investors have have been talking to me about. Uh, that's that's one of the key ones. Um, the other one is, I think, you know, in terms of uh, for African governments uh, to understand how will you engage China and can we engage China uh, as a group or can we form different alliances? You know, I think that right now, uh, to be honest, I just. There's really just no no clarity, and I and I've been trying to talk to Chinese officials in uh, you know Ethiopia and in Angola and in Zambia, and we just don't really you know we don't we don't have any answers. They always you know tell us to go back to Beijing. Um, so there's really not a lot of clarity. So I think that if there is more transparency. Maybe that could help these governments um, plan better on how they will get this relief. Uh, and approach China in a way that is more transparent for everybody, and to dispel some of um, you know some of the concerns that you're seeing, for example, right now in Nigeria, right? 
I think that if there was more transparency, maybe some of those issues could be addressed. But think about what the downside of transparency might be for the Chinese as well, because you know that if those contracts were put out there, there are legions of people in the United States government in Washington who will study every single comma, paragraph, period, and every detail. And the moment they see something that they don't like, they're going to take it and whack them over the head with it. And in this context of hyperpolarized U.S.-China relations, I just don't know if the Chinese are going to feel that willing to put themselves out there and be exposed like that. It could be. It could be. But on the other hand, if, you know, if China is trying to answer to the debt trap rhetoric and accusations, they could, this could be a way of showing the world uh, that you know, they're willing to help uh, Africa and one of the regions that is more vulnerable to, to the pandemic. Um, so I, I, I think you're, you're right in the sense that this opens up a Pandora box that you don't know, you know how it will, it will end up. But there's certainly downsides and there's certainly upside for, for China in doing this. Let's close our discussion by looking ahead in the, through the end of the year, get us to December, and then maybe into next year as well. Where are we in this debt? I mean, let's go back to our first question, because there's a lot of moving parts here. Are you more optimistic or less optimistic based on the discussions that you've had with your your sources about whether or not there's going to be some form of meaningful debt relief to give African governments the relief they need in order to both sustain their their debt servicing and not compromise their credit ratings agencies uh, ratings and at the same time be able to pay for the public health costs that, that are really going up quite quickly? I think that, you know, what is expected is when you, on, on this bilateral track, which is the G20 agreement, uh, the G20 will meet again during the, uh, I think, the fall uh, meetings of the, of the IMF and the World Bank. And there is expectation for uh, some sort of an extension to the moratorium. So right? this moratorium was due in late December. Um, you know, there are, there are people saying another year. Uh, there is Ghana and some other African countries saying at least two more years or three um, so that seems to be a possibility that, you know, we could see an extension of the moratorium. <clears throat> that certainly can help. But if you look at the calculations and the numbers itself, but, you know, different rating agencies are, are saying how, how actually how small this relief is and how it will help. But it's just too small and the problems are much bigger than this. So, you know, it is a palliative, but it may not be that much. So an extension of the moratorium also, including other countries that are not part of the 73 that are eligible uh, for this. So include some other small uh, emerging countries that are not, they don't get to the IDA uh, list. Um, that's also a possibility. I know that, for example, France and, and you know, has been, um, has been talking about including some other some other smaller countries and some other emerging economies into that list. That remains to be seen. So on the bilateral, you might see an extension, maybe some other countries in, included, but the magnitude of the problem, you know, it's much bigger. So this may not be. This will help, but you know, it's definitely not going to be a solution. On the on the private side, you know. Um, on the private side, I, I talked to some some activists, some people who you know work for NGOs that are trying to get 
private sector involvement. And, and some of these guys are looking for, you know, what you see in, in the equity side. They're looking for activist investors. But they haven't been able to find anybody like that, somebody who may be able to speak up and try to pressure other bondholders into, you know, giving more concessions or giving more relief. That seems to be difficult just because of the way this market is structured. Um, that seems to be complicated. So I don't expect much movement on that end. You know, so far it has been no request, official requests <clears throat> to the private sector. It's unlikely we will see any until the end of the year unless things um, get a lot worse. Uh, what you may see is that, you know, some countries uh, may end up uh, having been forced to restructure. Uh, but that's something else. That will be a, you know, there will be a restructuring event. On the multilateral front, I don't think the World Bank is going to change its opinion. You know, the IMF has been given some that relief, but this is limited to about, and the numbers may be wrong, but it's about 26, 25 to 26 million dollars so far. So that's, that's really not that much. And the World Bank, uh, through Malpass, has said that they are just not going to participate in this. And instead of doing that, they will just release more liquidity. Uh, for them, it's more about releasing funds, and it's not about uh, giving that relief. Uh, and China is the big question, right? And we just don't know. So far, we haven't seen anything, uh, you know, in terms of actual official agreements that, you know, we know what it's about. So I don't think the situation is going to change that much overall. So, you know, um, I, it will be interesting to see if the economy goes one way or the other and if that changes the mood. Because, you know, when this had a lot of traction was during the worst of the, of the pandemic uh, in March and in April. It really gained a lot of traction. And, and if you talk to a lot of these activists, you know, a lot of these NGOs, they, a lot of people were very optimistic because it was the first time in a long time that you saw a group of countries acting so fast to try to give relief to the poor countries of the world. Uh, but that seems to have been lost. And I don't know if we will ever regain it uh, in the future. Alonzo Soto is an Abuja-based correspondent for Bloomberg News. He's been writing some excellent reports over the past few months on the African debt crisis and also China's role in the African debt crisis. It sounds like he's got some new ones coming down the line. Uh, we'll put links to some of those articles in the show notes. Alonzo, you are on Twitter. Uh, tell us what your Twitter handle is. Actually, it will be Alonzo uh, Soto J, the letter J at the end. Okay, well, we'll put a link to that as well so people can follow what you're reading and writing and all your latest stories that you do from Abuja when you get back. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Kobus, absolutely fascinating. That was like a masterclass in African debt relief. I'm so glad we had Alonzo on. I've been a big fan of his reporting for, for quite some time. I do have to say, I'm kind of sticking with my, my rant from the previous couple of weeks that I've been talking about and something I've been writing about, you know, on the site and for the newsletter, I don't see the substantive, meaningful relief that African finance ministers and the likes of Vera Songwe have been calling for. Everything seems to be around the edges. And nobody wants to talk about the fact that the private creditor debt is not moving. Vera Songwe's idea is not moving. We have no idea what the Chinese are doing. And the World Bank IMF and the G20 Paris Club folks are more or less not powerless, but their power is so significantly reduced that they're they're not they're not major players anymore. So I don't know where that leaves us, but it doesn't. It's not a good place right now. I don't think. 
No, it's it's not encouraging. Um, and it certainly looks like, like for the short to medium term anyway, like, you know, the African countries are going to take a lot of a lot of economic stress, um, which in, in, a, in a lot of cases actually unnecessary kind of levels of economic stress, which is really going to going to push back African development. And we have to we have to, you know, again, point out that for many, many years, African um African countries have have posted some of the highest growth rates in the world. You know, in many cases, it was like five out of the ten highest, like fastest growing countries. So this seems really unnecessary. You know, um, and it's it's gonna like yeah, you know, kind of to take it from a different angle. I'd actually like what, what do you think? Um, how do you think Africa is going to respond to this? Um, you know, because because it seems like in a lot of in a lot of ways this this really exposes how unfairly Africa is treated in the in the global market. Um, and do you think that there's going to be some kind of move from Africa to for greater you know collective negotiation or other kind of measures to to try and improve its global position? We've been talking about that for as long as I've been studying African affairs, which is ten years seriously, twenty years informally. Um, there's been this dream of pan-Africanism and forming blocks and really negotiating. Now, there's been some hints of that. Again, we saw that in the Guangzhou discrimination crisis where groups of ambassadors and consul generals in China acted in concert with one another. The AFCTA has been more coordination with one another. But I think in these debt issues, it is easier for China to play one country off one another. At the same time, the needs of Nigeria and the needs of Malawi are so different from one another that it would be difficult to necessarily align those interests of those big powers. That's not to say it can't happen or won't happen, but it is to, I'm a little bit skeptical that in the short term, especially in the midst of this crisis, when politicians are up to their eyeballs in one urgent issue after another, from public health to the economy and increasingly social stability, that is, those are all issues. So in the short term, I don't see it happening. I know a lot of people have been wanting it to happen. It's an ideal, but in practicality, it doesn't seem to be happening. The other part of the crisis that we haven't talked about, and I regret not bringing it up with Alonzo, is corporate debt. And one of the things I've been noticing in South Africa is how many companies are getting downgraded, how many companies are struggling to meet their obligations. One of your largest cell phone operators didn't make its debt payments, by the way. Um, C-Cell, I think it's what it's called. And Cell C, exactly, didn't make its debt payments. And that is emblematic of a much bigger problem as well. So it's not just the state level that is struggling with credit ratings, downgrades, and a debt crisis, but there's also companies and corporate debt that is going to be much, much more difficult. I want to bring everybody back to an essay in The Elephant, which is an excellent uh, online magazine from Nairobi, uh, written by David and Dee, The Economist who he said that yield will be the new extractive resource in Africa. That the coal, the minerals, the timber, the Chinese and others can find that anywhere around the world. Investors are going to come looking for yield. And it was interesting that Alonzo pointed that out, saying that, well, because investors are hunting for yield, given the fact that there's an enormous amount of cash swilling around the world with nowhere to go, Africans are going to have to boost the yields. And that's what's going to you, you really hurt Africa because they're going to pay more for their debt compared to everybody else. Whether it's fair or not, that's just the reality I think that we're going to be in. 
Yeah, it's really, you know, like it's difficult to not go on crazy rants about the situation. In in relation to the commercial debt that you that you mentioned, I wonder if it's, if we're then next year or so going to see like a kind of a buying spree from external investors, you know, you know, snapping up kind of distressed assets in Africa, um, particularly in relation to to things like mobile phone companies, you know, where where Africa still is, you know, the the, the really the only large um, emerging market for for mobile phones now there was discussions like South Sea has had its ups and downs economically and and there was this um, rumors I think last year that China mobile might be interested in in, in, in buying into it and the, which then you know that proved to be not the case um, but it you know it'd be interesting but to they see. Flo- they floated yeah. that idea I yeah. mean it was out there into the universe and bear in mind the China Development Fund is an investor in Celsi and they were one of the the, the creditors who didn't get paid back. So the Chinese are in the corporate space as well. And, uh, and and one of the areas where we might see some consolidation in the tech sector, we've mentioned this on previous podcasts, is from Chinese actors in Africa to expand their share. So maybe Star Times would buy up uh, either Canal Plus or DSTV if those two are not able to, to, to sustain themselves. Hard to believe that three pay TV operators can survive in that market given the growth of IPTV and all the different ways that people can consume media today, while at the same time, the buying power of many of those consumers in these countries is going down. So that might be one area to look at. Obviously, in the mobile space, Transin is very well positioned. It too could gobble up some market share as well from local players. So yeah, there's probably going to be some consolidation. These type of pandemics have a way of transforming economies geopolitical power and turning everything upside down. My suspicion is that next year at this time, the African technology marketplace, the corporate debt marketplace, all of this will look very, very different. For better or for worse. I mean, that's a pretty safe prediction to make, but it's going to be really radical, the changes. I am less optimistic that we're going to see a V-shaped recovery. I believe that we're going to see a really slow, long, long decline and maybe some uptick depending on when we're going to get uh, a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 grim. I, th- I think at the moment. Um, at the same time, I think for for certain sectors like like um, you know young, like um, you know so some consumer sectors, I, I can I can imagine you know things might not be so dire. Um, but and and it is interesting that um, you know kind of as as we're seeing all of this kind of doom and gloom, we're also seeing, for example, Netflix being very engaged in Africa. Netflix in Nigeria is you know because really. They're pumping a lot of, of money into Nigerian market, for example. So it's it's going to be it's 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 a kind of a mixed a mixed landscape, but a lot of it looks pretty gloomy. So we cover this story every day in our email newsletter. We would love for you to join our community of readers. Let us know what you think on the stories that we're writing every day. You can find some of the stories on our website. You get a three story per month limit if you're not a subscriber. For subscribers, you can. Read it all. So this is the stuff that Kobus and I are hashing through with people like Alonzo every single day. So if you do China Africa uh, for your work, if you follow Chinese foreign policy or African politics for your job as a scholar, as an academic, as an analyst, a journalist, whatever, uh, we think that the newsletter would be great for you and we'd love for you to join us. And if you use the promo code podcast at checkout, 
will give you a big giant 33% discount. Uh, so go ahead, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and join our community of readers. We'd love for you to, to be a part of that. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash chinaafricaproject to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Thank you.